Hey everyone, how's it going? Good morning. Well, that's good English right there. Well, um, hey, it's so good to have you here. My name is Matthew, and if you're visiting, you're new here. I'm the pastor here, and I'd love to get to meet you afterwards. So if we haven't met yet, we should do so afterwards. We can find each other out in the lobby by the coffee. Uh, I'd love to love to say hey. Um, we are. <clears throat> going to be looking at a passage of scripture today in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're in Matthew 5. Um, as you're turning there, uh, I've realized this morning, I don't know if this is going to be meaningful for anyone, but I, I thought it was kind of cool. We, we have right now uh, a team of people from Trinity, East, West, North Side, who are currently in the Dominican Republic. They are going there to work with an organization called Makarios. Makarios is a Greek word that means blessed or blessing. And the reason that we go, there it is, the reason that we go uh, every year to the Dominican Republic is because uh, this organization has given their entire life to beginning to try to curb and change uh, generational poverty. And they've done it in relational ways. They've done it through education. They've done it through family engagement. They've done it through community involvement. And so they are just on the ground, on the front lines of some very poor areas, uh, pouring into these families, into these kids that have no one else uh, loving them. And so what we do every year is we go and take all of those workers and we take them away to a beautiful place and we pamper them and give them a space to breathe and to pray and to be restored and to rest up. And so you can be praying with our very own Travis Woodruff, Eastside Fellow. He's there right now. A couple other people from Eastside that you may know. But be praying for them this week that we would be hands and feet of Jesus who offer a sense of rest and blessing to people who give their lives to bless uh, those who are struggling and who are underprivileged uh, among us. Um, and I thought that was kind of cool that, like, here we are, we're there with Makarios, and we're going to spend the whole morning thinking together about what Jesus says is Makarios. What is blessed according to Jesus? What is the good life? So we'll begin by reading this text. If you're new to the Bible, you may still actually recognize some of these things because they're pretty common biblical things. Um, but uh, this, we're going to read the first 12 verses of this chapter, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountains, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we just, as we just sang together, we are your children. We know that you hear us. Lord, we pray that we would live out today and coming out of this place, um, that other line we just sang, our hearts trust you completely. Lord, let us lean into that. I know that in myself there are reservations, ways that I do not completely trust. 
that I'm trying to protect and guard myself. We pray that you would pour your spirit out on us. Holy Spirit, come. Come and move and manifest yourself and soften the hard ground and open up the closed-off places within us. Invite us into your kingdom. We ask for your grace to hear you, God. Let us have open ears to hear you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, one of the ideas, philosophical ideas, that was kind of new to me when I started coming to Trinity four or five years ago was this idea of the good life. It wasn't new, like the concept of it, but the language around the good life was new. And the reason that we were all talking about the good life at Trinity four or five years ago is because we were all reading this book by James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love, which I recommend to you at some point. It's a great book. Uh, and in James's, uh, Jamie, as his friends call him, so we'll call him Jamie, as Jamie uh, says in his book, uh, the things that we do are constantly reinforcing what we actually love. And so we have liturgies. These liturgies are not just things we do at church. They are the daily rhythms and practices that you and I engage in that are propping up um, our center of worship. They are telling us what it is that we are uh, wanting to attain to. What is our idea of the good life, essentially, is what he talks about. What, what, is, what is a rival for me? When do I feel like I've got it? I've got what I've been looking for my whole life. You know, the, as Bono said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but I do have a, a sense that it exists out there, this good life. Um, most of us in here um, are, are, are old enough to remember shopping malls. And uh, so shopping malls, after you left the Blockbuster, you'd go to the shopping mall. And Jamie Smith talks about shopping malls in his book as being these houses of worship. Uh, they are full sensory, full-bodied experiences that are meant to cast a vision for you and me of what the good life is. And they still are, you know, if you can find one. They still are in this. You go into a shopping mall and you have um, all the clothes. And they, this is what your life will be like if you wear these clothes. And you go past... Uh, Williams and Sonoma and Sir, Sir La Table. And these are the sort of things that you could make if you had, you know, cast iron, enameled, you know, cookware or whatever. And then you go uh, past Annie's and like, you can smell like delicious cinnamon pretzels as well. Like this is just a picture of what the good life is. And it's constantly directing your worship in one direction or another. It's, it's a full body, full uh, sensory experience. So when I was in high school, um, this will date me a little bit. When I was in high school, uh, the mall was a bit of a house of worship for, for my people. And um, the, the Holy of Holies, the, the inner sanctum, was the Abercrombie and Fitch. Um, and when you, would, when you would, you know, pass through the curtains, as it were, into the cloud of incense that was waiting for you in Abercrombie and Fitch. And if you ever walked into one, you're like, there, there was a cloud of incense. Um, it is, it is a place that was meant to in every way evoke this promise to you. There were icons on all of the walls, black and white photographs of nearly naked people who apparently had just taken off the clothes that they were now going to sell you to wear. And all in these tables, thick wooden tables with slightly disheveled cargo pants and flannel shirts. These were the vestments of the priests of this house of worship. And the Goo Goo Dolls were our worship leaders. And all of this... All of this was meant to stir up in you this idea that if you could just spend a few hundred bucks on jeans and a sweatshirt, you too could have a life like this. You too could smell like this. You too could have friends like this and experiences like this. You too could have the Abercrombie and Fitch good life. And a lot of us are still looking for some version of that. 
A lot of us are still spending a tremendous amount of energy and time and money and our life looking for that attainment, that thing that we had uh, before us, this promise. You see, that's what the good life is. The good life comes to us and it is loaded down with promises. If I get this, then I'll finally be happy. Then I'll finally be comfortable in my own skin. Then I'll finally love life. Then I'll finally have a sense of internal serenity or however it shakes out for you. And we're all different in here. Our personalities are different. So for some of us in here, the good life is actually a sense of deep inner serenity, regardless of external circumstances. For others of us in here, like myself, the good life is a sense of deep accomplishment. This idea like it's all done. All the boxes have been checked. For others of us in here, it's just this sense of deep belonging, that I fit, that I'm wanted, that I'm known. And whatever your picture is, whatever your deep desire is that you're trying to attain, the good life is the thing that holds it out for you and says, if you get these things, you will find what you're looking for. And then Jesus enters the scene. And he casts a very different picture of the good life for you and me. He says, actually, the people that are blessed in the world, the ones who are fortunate and happy, are not the ones that you would think. It is actually a different kind of person altogether. And so we're going to just gather around Jesus today and listen to his teaching and see if we can learn from him. The beginning of our text today, or our text today, is the beginning of a larger collection of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. Probably some of you have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in your Bible as Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's kind of laid out there as a single sermon, as though Jesus one day sat down on a mountain and said two sentences about lust, and two sentences about divorce, and two sentences about murder, and two sentences... But what it actually probably is, scholars agree, is, is a collection of teachings, sort of Jesus' greatest hits, posthumously put together by Columbia Records, for you and me to now go through. And these are the things that were Jesus' big idea about what life was meant to be like. And Jesus' vision of the good life is very different from the one that was given to you and me as kids and continues to be given to you and me through media. Jesus' vision of the good life is one where a person strikes you on one cheek and you turn and offer the other one to him as well. Or if a person forces you to carry a pack for a mile, you are willing to go the extra mile and carry it even further. It's a type of life that uh, has religious practices, but these are not done for anyone to see. No Instagram pictures of me and my quiet time letting people know how devout I am, but rather my prayer and my giving and my fasting are things done in secret so that they're not clouded by all the noise of other people's opinions and their likes on how I'm doing with Jesus. It is a life where not merely my actions de- uh, determine whether or not I'm a good person, but my heart itself. So it's not simply enough to not murder a person. But if my heart despises and hates and resents the person, Jesus says, that's murder in your heart. That has to be cleaned out too. And all of this this picture of, the, of what life could be like in the kingdom of God, what life is meant to be like under the rulership and the kingship of God, that's what a kingdom is. We think of the kingdom and we try to lay it down as nothing more than merely a socio-political vision and something that we can sort of like say, oh, the kingdom of God, whenever it, whenever it feels right to us, we can say that's, that's the picture of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is at its core God as your king, God leading us and directing us, telling us what's right and what's wrong, directing us and protecting us. That's what the kingdom of God is. And Jesus lays out this vision of the kingdom of the good life for you and me. And it cuts across the grain of everything you and I have ever thought or been taught or desired or wanted. (laughs) Jesus doesn't discount the deep desires that we're looking for of success or attainment or accomplishment of belonging, of serenity and peace. He doesn't discount the desires. He just says there's an entirely different way of getting to them than what you and I assume is the most logical uh, path. 
So we're going to look today at this first little section of the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll, for the next few weeks, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount as well. This is called the Beatitudes, these 12 verses. Beatitude is an old English word that means blessing. We don't use it anymore. We hardly use the word blessing anymore unless someone has just sneezed. Uh, but Beatitude is just this idea of like fortunate or happy. And Jesus gives this beautiful like series of Proverbs, one-line Proverbs. Every one of them deserves an entire week of study, and we don't have the time for that at all. We're just going to sort of gloss over them, look at the big picture of what he's casting for us. But Jesus is wanting you and me to know that there is a different way of viewing the world. Just imagine that, just before we even begin, just, you know, I think it's always good to ask this question before we begin with the hard teaching of Jesus. I first heard our bishop, Todd Hunter, ask it to a room full of Trinity people years ago, and it stuck with me every time I read the Gospels. The, the question is this, do I think Jesus is smart? Do I think he's intelligent? I, I, I know that you can think that he's powerful. I know that you can think that he's God. You can think he's the son of God. You can think that he does incredible things. You can think that he died on a cross and rose from the dead. You can think all of those things and you can still think you're smarter than him. And a lot of us do. We can still look at the teachings of Jesus as sort of something that we're looking down upon and we're deciding when is he relevant and when is he not. Do I think he's intelligent? When Jesus is talking about a thing, do I think he knows what he's talking about more than I know? That's a hard place to get to, but that's what it means to be a disciple to begin to believe that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. And so when he says things like, happy and fortunate are the mournful, blessed are the poor and the meek, he's telling us about reality from a vantage point that is higher and greater and loftier and more intelligent than ours. And so we just, with humility to the best of our ability, and it's very hard to do this, we just sort of put ourselves under this today and learn from our teacher, our rabbi, Jesus. The first thing we see, though, in this text, it's pretty clear, is that Jesus' vision of the good life is very difficult. Uh, it's, it's not easy what he's calling you and me to. It's a hard road that he's offering to us. He wants you and me to know from the beginning that this life in the kingdom is not going to be an easy road. Um, the thing that holds this whole section together is this word, blessed. As, a, as I said, it's the Greek word makarios. And makarios means, literally, to be fortunate or happy because of circumstances. Now, that is an incredible thing. Not to be fortunate or happy in spite of circumstances. So, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, because the loss that they have experienced now will mean this. He is actually, he's holding up the thing that we would say, why would you say that that is blessed or fortunate? And he said, oh, oh, because those who mourn will be comforted. He says it 11 times. Blessed are those who experience these things. Fortunate and happy are those people who live a life like this, who are reviled and persecuted and called names falsely on my account. Blessed are those. Howard Thurman, uh, the mid-century theologian and pastor, says this of poor in spirit. This is just one example. We could go so deep on all these. He says, poor in spirit. It does not mean having a low view of self so as not to be seen as conceited or proud or arrogant. This isn't like self-deprecation, but rather to have a present sense of our inadequacy. It's just like a real view of ourself, a real present sense of our inadequacy in our own spiritual life. And what are the inadequate given according to Howard Thurman? Or according to Jesus? <laughs> they are given the kingdom of God. They are given the rule of God in their life. Thurman goes on to say, the rule of God in one's life is the priceless possession. It does not mean that one is perfect, 
holy or sinless. But it does mean that one has a sense of holiness. I hope you know what that feels like. A sense of perfection. A sense of sinlessness. This is the channel through which the blessing of God comes to me. Or as Jesus says it elsewhere, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. We naturally in our just very affluent, comfort-driven, quick-fix solution society, um, we don't like Jesus' words. We sort of coil to them. Uh, in the 60s, there was this song by Simon and Garfunkel uh, where they make fun of this. They have a line in there, blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, the ratted on. Um, it's this idea that like Jesus is actually holding up suffering and saying the highest attainment in life is suffering. And this has caused many people, including a prominent member of the American Psychology Board, to say Jesus is essentially, uh, Jesus is teaching sadism to his followers. But is that what Jesus is doing? Do I think he's smart? Is he intelligent? Is he teaching sadism to you and me? Is he telling that, is he telling us that the way of life is actually to pursue persecution and suffering and hardship? I do not believe it is. I don't believe that's what he's saying. And this is because the second part of every beatitude roots the suffering in an ultimate promise. Jesus is making um, a teaching. He's giving us a teaching that is telling us that the things that feel like hardship are actually have on the other tail end of them a deep promise to meet a deep desire within us that will only be found through these roads. Another way that he would say it in John's gospel is that the abundant life that God offers to us, this is what Jesus gives us, the abundant life is not found in the ways that you and I typically go about seeking abundance. This this doesn't make any sense to us, right? I can see it on your faces. You're all like, this doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to us. Jesus is asking you and me to consider that maybe the things that you and I have been told are the things that will make us most happy in life, are actually not. That there's a deeper good. There's a cosmic embrace that is deeper than whatever temporary thing we could experience. There is a cosmic satisfaction that is more profound than whatever we could find through cheap imitations. Jesus' version of the good life is rooted in ultimate promises. And because of that, because of that, Jesus' vision of the good life gives immense courage to people. So this is, I've been thinking about what would, what would happen in my life if I began to embrace this idea? If I just began to like really take it into myself? Um, if I, if I was able to believe that actually what is most true is that in the end there is blessing that comes to those who are willing to face and endure hardship and suffering, not to try to escape it, but to be in the middle of it, believing that God has me in it for a reason and for a purpose. So I've been reading this really big book uh, by David Garrow called Bearing the Cross. It's 1986 Pulitzer Prize. It's a biography on Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And it's very, very detailed and incredible. Um, and it's very, very detailed. Like it follows like, and then, and then he woke up and then he fell back asleep for a couple of minutes. And then he woke up again. It's like very detailed about the, the, but what's so cool about it is that you, you get to walk very closely and intimately with this, this young man who in his twenties was thrust suddenly into the center of a thing that was incomparable and that no one was able to, to handle. 
Um, and as a, as a person who is younger than many of the people in this room, as a person who is in his mid-twenties, he's suddenly at the tip of the spear for the anti-segregation movement in the South that is going to change the entire world. And he struggles deeply with doubt the entire time. And he constantly is looking for ways to get out and to, to go into a quieter life and to have a quiet life with Coretta and with his kids and to pastor a little church. And yet, in the late 50s, he's in Alabama, and he's in his kitchen, and he's kind of at the end of his rope. And he has, in this moment, in his kitchen, at the table, he has a vision of God. God gives him a word. He tells him, essentially, I will be with you always, no matter what. And that moment in Martin's uh, kitchen, he holds on to you for the rest of his life. And when persecution comes, when he's thrown in prison, when he's betrayed by people who he trusted, when he faces all kinds of opposition, again and again it comes up where he's like, he's he's doubting himself, he doesn't know, and he goes back to that moment in the kitchen. He trusts there's an ultimate promise that is greater than whatever temporary circumstance I'm in the middle of, and it continued to carry him all the way to the end in 1968. This word from the Lord in the kitchen given 10 years before. Because he knew that he had an ultimate promise that was greater than whatever temporary relief he could offer to himself. And I spend so much of my life trying to protect myself from pain. I spend so much of my life trying to root out the pain in my life. I spend so much of my time and energy and thought life trying to figure out how to be in a better place, a different place. What shortcut I can take to get there. Whose fault it is that I'm in pain right now. And what they need to do about it to fix it. And Jesus looks at you and me in the eye. And he's not joking. And he says, blessed are you in this place. For in this place, there is a promise. An ultimate promise that is greater than the temporary thing. That you think relief will give you. This is the word that Jesus has for you and me. And the world has been blessed most significantly by people who are willing to hold their life loosely, not in a devil-may-care sort of way, it doesn't really matter, but actually, and it really does matter, but what doesn't matter is my relative success, my acclaim, people's opinions of me, how that doesn't really matter. What I'm able to do is actually just hold my life loosely and to do things that matter, to fight for things that really that really matter. And I just know that you and I probably need to be reminded of this I know I need to be reminded of this. I spend so much of my life and energy trying really hard to keep people happy with me. And I know I can stand up here and I can feel like really like, wow, he's he's very direct or, or whatever. Let me just tell you, I spend most of my life calculating how I'm negatively impacting people, which is another way of saying I'm a people pleaser. I spend most of my life trying to figure out how to mitigate suffering in other people's parts and to present myself in a way so that I won't ruffle people too much. The world needs people who are willing to stand up for things that are true who are willing to believe in justice enough. They're, they're willing to take hard stands. They're willing to give their life and to pour it out freely for an ultimate good with the idea that the ultimate promise lays on the other side. And that's going to mean for every one of us in here being willing to be unpopular, being willing to be misunderstood, being willing to care about a thing even when no one knows that we care about the thing, even when no one is able to applaud us or give us a like for how we said a thing. We live in, a, in an area of Atlanta, in a city that is very activistic. It's, it's, not a, it's not a hard thing to live in East Atlanta and, and, and to be pro-civil rights for LGBTQ and women. It's, it's not a hard thing. This is not a hard thing. Um, it is a hard thing when you try to extend civil rights to babies who are growing in women's wombs. Suddenly that becomes a hard line. We need to be willing to be brave for fighting for the rights of all people, 
We need to be people who are willing to speak the truth even when the truth um, is going to be misunderstood. And the way that we get there is actually the recognition that suffering is not something to be pursued, but it is an inevitability if we're actually on the right road. If we're actually doing life the way that it's meant to be, like, hardship is going to come. And so just when it comes, like, go like, oh, well, this is par for the course. This is how it's supposed to work. And so I continue to do the next right thing. I continue to take the next right step. I continue to say the next true thing. And I'm held together by this ultimate promise that Jesus lays before you and me. Because people have always understood, the church has always understood, that to follow Jesus is to follow a crucified person. Just to remind you of that. When we follow Jesus, we are not following a, a, a very successful CEO. We're not, we're not following a, a, an influencer on Instagram. We are following a crucified person who died shamefully outside of a city, naked, with no followers to be spoken of except for a, a handful of women. That's who you and I are following. And the road of Jesus, the way of Jesus, is going to be a road of hardship and suffering as we fight to answer the prayer that we pray every week, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let it be here. And the world that Jesus offers to us, the vision of the good life, is a source of immense courage. It can help me to begin to love recklessly, to be generous, to not keep a record of wrongs, maybe to stop keeping records altogether. And to just be willing to just pour my life out again and again for what is good and right. This is at least how it's impacted people like Dr. King and those who've gone before us. He was speaking to a church in Birmingham in 1963, uh, shortly after there was a bombing in a church that killed uh, several young black girls. And he's speaking at this church full of grief-stricken, shattered, disoriented, angry people. And he says at the end of his eulogy, at times life is hard, as hard as crucible steel. It has its bleak and painful moments. Like the ever-flowing waters of a river, life has its moments of drought and its moments of flood. Like the ever-changing cycle of the seasons, life has the soothing warmth of the summer and the piercing chills of its winter. But this is... This is the word from his kitchen speaking. But through it all, God walks with us. Never forget that God is able to lift you from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope and to transform dark and desolate valleys into sunlit paths of inner peace. Often when my life is not going the way that I want it to go, I assume something is wrong. And my job is to get the thing that is wrong out of my life to fix it in some way. And I am convinced the more that I live with Jesus as his disciple, that the hard things that come into my life, and not just like the temporary hard things, but like the sustained lifelong hard things, that if I were to lay them before him and say, but this is so hard, he would look me right in the eye and say, blessed are you. This is full of promise. This is not a mistake. There is something in this for you that is a gift. The reason he can say that, of course, is our final point. 
that Jesus' version of the good life is embodied in his own life, which we're going to now celebrate together at this table as we draw near to his body and to his blood. Who is the meek? Who is the persecuted? Who is the reviled? Who is the merciful? Who is the poor in spirit? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in The Cost of Discipleship, having reached the end of the Beatitudes, we naturally ask if there is any place on this earth for the community which they describe. Clearly, there is one place and only one, and that is where the poorest, meekest, and most sorely tired of all men is to be found, on the cross at Golgotha. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. With him, the community has lost all, and with it, with him, it has found all. Because from the cross, there comes the call, blessed, blessed. To draw near to the body and blood of Jesus, as we will do in a minute, is to draw near to the promise that on the other side of suffering, and it may be a long way on the other side of suffering, on the other side of suffering is resurrection. The bearing of scars, for sure. We will continue to bear the scars of our life, the things that have hurt us and that have cost us dearly, as Jesus himself bears scars to this day. But those scars probably don't feel like as big of a deal as he walks around alive. And that's what waits for us on the other side of these things. This is the word he gives to you and me. And may you and I have the grace and the spirit, the presence of God in our life, continually poured out on us enough to believe him when he says it. Why don't we stand up together? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.